All right, well, good morning. Oh, man, it's good to be with you today. Today is an exciting day. My phone was like blowing up as we were beginning this service of all these pastors from all over South Florida who are going, praying for today, praying for today. And I just want you to kind of appreciate the reality of that. That's a big deal. Uh, you know, I've been at this church, actually, as a senior pastor of this church, 20 years like this week. <laughs> Seriously. November 4, 2001 was the first official Sunday, so this, this marks that occasion as an exact, you know, 20 years. Uh, and, uh, and 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 6, 7 years ago, we didn't even have a category for the kind of church cooperation and collaboration that we're seeing now. It is nothing short of Awesome. The relationships, the cooperation, the, we're cheering each other on, guys. Like we're, I'm going, hey, you know what? I think you would do best at Calvary Chaplain. You know what I think? Would, who did that? We're like trying to previously, no, 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 come on over from, you know, like dramatically different. And this is kind of an emblem of that. This is the third year in a row with churches all over South Florida, Broward County, but also some up in Palm Beach and some down in Dade. So we're spreading, and it's awesome, have come together and said, you know what, we're going to go to the Word of God, and we are all of us collectively going to ask the same question from it. And then we're going to give the same answer to our people because we feel like the church in South Florida needs to hear that answer. And this year, we've coupled it with this prayer movement. My goodness. I got to believe the Lord is excited about that. Like, I don't know about you, but like, that makes me expectant. That makes me say, okay, so God, what are you up to? What are you going to do? Because whatever it is, I'm longing to see it. And I'm not alone. It's fantastic. So today, as Drew said, we're going to start a three-week study. It's called Awaken, okay? It has a subtitle, Live Like It Matters. What what are we going to the Bible collectively as the church in South Florida and asking? We're saying, Lord, what does it look like to be a people who are awake and therefore then lives like it matters? So what does it look like to be awake to the presence of God all the time in your life, to the power of God all the time in your life, to the mission of God? Don't miss that one, because that's the native response of our hearts when the other two are in place. All the time in our life, we want to live like that. And here's our prayer. Our prayer is not just that God will reveal that to our intellect. In other words, you know, we'll go to the Bible and we'll go, okay, so, you know, we've seen a couple of examples here, maybe three, you know, over the course of the next three weeks. This is what it looks like to live like, I don't know, it matters. Like, you know, you're awake, power, presence, mission, got it, okay? And then we can look at ourselves in the mirror and go, awake, not awake. We can look at each other and go, awake, not awake. I now have another piece of information by which I can critically analyze myself and other people, and I can just decide, are you awake or not awake? No, that's not the point. The prayer is, God, come and wake us up. Let it begin. So our journey begins today at a well in the Samaritan village of Sychar. And it's a well that you can actually go to. Now, here's how I know that. Because almost exactly two years ago today, I was there with like 54 others of you. I've actually got a picture of the well. That's sort of a basin on the side of the well. But that's the ancient well right there. It's remarkable. You can pull up water and drink it out of the well. I've got this video of my daughter Morgan, and she's turning the crank on the well. You know, And the well, by the way, is really, really deep. Okay, So like she's going... You know, like, how much longer, you know? Somebody else want to take a few rotations. Like, you got to pull this bucket way up out of the bottom, and then the bucket comes up, you know? And then our tour guide, whose name is Ibrahim, he's an amazing Palestinian Christian man, he, he looks around like, you know, and then he sees this little tin cup 
okay, that I'm pretty sure has been there since the days of Jesus. I mean, you should have seen this thing. I mean, you want to talk about a dented, crud-covered anyway. So he takes this thing, you know, and then he like dips it in the bucket. And he's like, who wants to drink out of the water that Jacob, who dug the well, for real, drank out of? His sons, who became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, drank out of Jesus. I'm sure drank out of. I mean, he shows up at the well like he's thirsty. At some point, he must have gotten a drink. Who wants to drink out of it? And all I can think, like I'm standing, I'm way away, which I'm sort of grateful because I think if he would have stuck it on me, I'd have gone, uh, 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 you know, because I'm getting a lip sore from the back of the room, you know. I'm thinking to myself, pretty sure Jacob drank from that and so has two million other people who have come here. Zero chance. Some of you drank of it. Takes place at a well. It involves Jesus, kind of a big deal, but it involves a woman from this ancient city of Sychar, the Samaritan village that was actually located about a half mile from the well. And then in the end of the story, and this is the part that I don't want you to miss, this is the awake part. This is the instinctive response of your heart. Here's what you do when you're awake. It involves the rest of the village and her going to them and saying, oh my goodness, you got to come meet Jesus. The story takes place at a well. And it begins with this statement that's really telling. Jesus, it says, had to go through Samaria. And I want to show you where Jesus is at because we've got a map. So Jesus is down at the bottom of the map. He's down south in Jerusalem. You can see it there. And he wants to go all the way up into Cana of Galilee. You can see that sort of in the middle of the Galilee region there. And so it says that he had to go through Samaria in order to get from point A to point B. And the reality is, you know, you look at the map and you think, well, of course he did. I mean, that's, that's the route. That's the most direct route. In fact, you can see Sychar right there in the middle of Samaria. It's right on the most direct route. Go to Sychar, travel between the two mountains of Gerizim and Ebal, and just keep on heading up to Galilee. Boom, you get there in time, everything is right. But that is not the way that Jews traveled in that day. Had to go through Samaria. I mean, that would have struck their ears, and they would have said, no, no, he doesn't have to. In fact, why would he do that? That's crazy. I mean, no Jew would go through Samaria because it was full of Samaritans. And they hated each other. They persecuted each other racially, racial prejudice. They persecuted each other religiously, religious prejudice. For centuries leading up to this moment that we're looking at in this story, they terrorized each other literally. Samaria was not a safe place for a Jew to be. So what Jews would do instead if they wanted to go from Judea up to Galilee is they would cross the Jordan River right by Jericho down there at the bottom. Then they would go up the east side of the Jordan. They would cross it again once they came into Galilee just below the Sea of Galilee. And then they would finish the rest of their trip. And he doesn't have some kind of schedule to keep. It's not like, hey, I've got to be in Canaan in a day. And the, I think the only reason we can do this, the only way it's going to happen is if we go through Samaria. And his guys are going, wait, what? Are you, we can't do that. We, he had to go through Samaria because he had to meet this woman. And then give her as a gift to the church. She's amazing. But what was life like for her? I want to get in her sandals for a second. What was it like to be a woman in the first century? Because it was dramatically different and a lot uglier. Really ugly. So a woman, first century, this woman and everybody else in that particular time in this part of the world owned legally absolutely not a thing. You owned nothing. You inherited nothing. 
So practically speaking, if you were going to provide for yourself, how in the world are you going to do that? Well, you needed to be attached to a man. You needed to be in your father's household because he, as a man, could own things and provide things and so forth. You get the idea? Or after that, you needed to be married to a man who could do that for you. Or if your husband died, hopefully you've had a son with your husband who, even if he's still an infant, inherits all of the wealth of your husband and his household would be managed in such a way as to provide for you. But what if... You don't have a family, you don't have a husband, you don't have a son. You got nothing. And you are immediately the most vulnerable of the vulnerable in this society. Add to that the fact that the purpose of marriage in those days, and everybody understood this, was to have children. In fact, it was more than that. It was for the wife to provide for the husband. So just enter into the joy of this pressure, a son And it was not only tolerated, it was expected that if you got married after a certain period of time, if your wife was not able to provide you at least with a child, which suggested that hopefully you'll eventually get a son, okay, that you would in fact divorce your wife and you would move on with another woman. It's expected. She expected it, you expected it, your family expected it, her family, if they're still around, well, they expected it. Look, we come to this story, and it does not say that this woman is barren. I think that she's barren for several reasons, one of which is that there are all of these other correspondences between her, for example, and Rachel in the Old Testament, who meets Jacob, her husband, at a well, and who is barren in that moment. But that just hasn't been revealed yet. They haven't been married, hasn't manifested There's all kinds of correspondences between Jesus, again, who meets Jesus at this particular well, okay, and Rebecca, who is encountered by the servant of Abraham, who sends his servant to find a husband for, or find a wife for his son, Isaac. And she's barren. As I look at how her life plays out, and from the facts that we do know about her, we do know that this is a woman that by the time that she meets with Jesus has had five husbands, and the man that she's living with is not her husband. She obviously doesn't have a son to take care of her, and apparently her father is out of the picture. Maybe she has shamed him out of the picture at this point. We don't know. We just know that apart from a man, she's up a creek with no paddle. And so I think the most likely explanation for how she comes to be the person that Jesus meets at this well is, you know, she grows up and she was probably a virtuous kid. A wonderful, good girl who went to school with all the other girls in the town who are still there, by the way. Their relationship has changed. She gets married and she's full of all the anticipation of everybody who gets married, including that of children and family. And then time goes by and time goes by and time goes by and pressure grows. And all of a sudden it becomes clear that she's not able to provide a child for her husband. Now, again, biologically, it might be his fault. But apparently, since she's had five husbands in this case, it's her fault. And in that day, they didn't have that kind of understanding. So it was always the woman's fault. My goodness awful. So he divorces her. And what does she do? She then gives herself to any man who will take her in, including husband number two, three, four, five. And the guy that she's living with, he's like, why why, why do we have to make a pretense of this? I mean, (laughs) I'm not going to marry you, but you can move in for a while. My goodness, man. I don't know if my theory is right. I think it is. 
But even if it isn't, here's what we do know from the facts of the story. She is generally regarded within her tiny little community. It's a small town as the most promiscuous woman in town. And at this point, she has probably become that. And we know that because she comes out to the well to meet with Jesus alone, although she doesn't know he's going to be there. And she comes out at noon. Why does that matter? Because women did not go to wells alone. You didn't know who you were going to meet at a well. I mean, when you traveled through these countries and we saw part of one on a map, okay, you didn't go in a straight line. You went from well to well to well to well to well to well. You get the idea. So everybody knows where the wells are. Very inefficient. But you need water. So who are you going to meet at the well? You never knew from day to day. So all the women would congregate together, and for reasons related to safety, they would all go to the well together. But for reasons related to social reasons as well, they would all go to the well together. I mean, you know, they didn't have phones, they didn't have social media, they didn't have television, they didn't have any of these things. Like, their social hour was, we're all going to the well together, and man, they looked forward to it every single day, unless you were her. For her, it was painful. For her, it was miserable. She was the biggest threat to every woman's husband in the town, or so at least they must have seen her. Interesting how we get to where we get, isn't it? We don't set out that journey. We don't like start out and going, hey, you know what? I'm thinking in about 10 years, I'd like to be here. We just somehow make it here. And we go, now what? It's tough. The women would gather together in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening, and then they would all together in a big social event, probably with their kids running around and so forth, laughing and singing and having fun. They would go to the well to get their daily water, and then they would go back a half mile back to the town. This woman goes to the well alone, and she goes at the hottest moment of the day, which is noon, and she goes hoping to see absolutely no one. That's her goal. And there she meets Jesus. She walks up to the well carrying a water pot, guys. And it's a water pot that is emblematic of a thirst that is far more than just physical. Can we agree? What is she thirsting for when she encounters Jesus at the well? She's thirsting for love that's unconditional. She's thirsting for kindness and gentleness. She's thirsting for companionship that's faithful. She's thirsting for dignity, for value, for worth. She's thirsting for meaning and for purpose to this life that she's stuck in. And her life is one in which she's aging and running through man after man after man. And with every man she becomes in that culture less desirable in that town. And with every year that goes by, look, none of us get better looking as we age. So her situation grows in insecurity. I think she comes looking for purity. Maybe more than anything else. I, I think she has this, this faint recollection of the person she was like a long time ago. And she's looking for somebody who could run her back through life. Sort of rewind the wheels of time somehow and bring her back to a place where her purity could be restored. She shows up at the well and she's probably disappointed to see somebody there. But she's not disappointed for long. And I love what Jesus does. He had to meet with her. 
What does he do? He, he talks to her. He asks her for a drink. You know what? That's pretty normal today. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? I mean, like, if, if you were there and, and somebody else showed up, at least you'd go, hey, how you doing? You know, good to see you. You need help with that, you know? I mean, the well's deep. It's a lot of cranks. You know, like, you want me to just do that for you? I got it. No big deal. And, you know, what's your name? And, okay, good. Have a nice day. I mean, that's just our social conventions. But, again, culture is different. It was seen as beneath a man to speak to a woman in public. Like, we barely spoke to our wives in public back then. And not only does he speak to her, he asks her to give him a drink. Now, what does that imply? It implies that he's willing to touch what she, an unclean Samaritan, the most promiscuous woman in town, and he knows it. He'll reveal that in a minute. He's willing to touch what she has touched. He's willing to put his lips where she has placed her lips. You know, like Morgan cranked up the bucket and Ibrahim grabbed the crud-covered cup, you know, and, and I'm like, there's no chance I'm doing I'm glad I'm in the back of the room. Jesus is different. See, unlike me, everything and everyone he touches immediately becomes clean. The leper comes to him. And nobody would touch a leper in that day. And he doesn't need to touch the leper, by the way, to heal him. But he knows it would be good for his soul. And he reaches out and he touches the leper and he makes him clean. There's a woman that we find in the Bible and she has, you know, gynecological issues. I mean, just sorry, too much information. But she's got some problems, right? And they're, they're chronic and they're not going away. And she's spent all her money on doctors and she's done everything that she could do in that day. You can imagine the indignity of that to try to cure the problem and have been unable. And so she sneaks through the crowd. She is thought to be unclean because of this issue by all of the Jews. So she pulls you know, her, her cloak over her face like nobody realizes who it is. And she doesn't even tell Jesus she's coming. She just touches the hem of his robe and she's healed. He's like, pass the cup. I'm not worried about a lip sore. I make everyone and everything I touch clean. He asks her for a drink, and she's so stunned, she doesn't give it to him. She just ignores it. She's like, oh, wait, what? We're, we're having a conversation? Like... And then he offers her water. He calls it living water. It's a water that doesn't satisfy the thirst of our body, but it's a water that satisfies the thirst of our soul, which is a lot like the thirst of our body, and he explains the difference. He says in verse 13 of John chapter 4, it says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this physical water, of this physical well that we're meeting at, will thirst again. You know what? Everybody in our group who drank of that water had some more to drink later on in the same day. It's the way that it works. Like we drink water and water and water, like, you know, and our bellies are like, whoa, you know, we're thinking, oh, I can't drink anymore, you know. Never do I want to see water again. You know, like an hour and a half later, you're like, okay, I'll take a cup. You know, like, give me a little bit. I'm thirsty. It's how my body works. I'm thirsty. It's how my soul works too. I close the big deal. I'm like, yes, I'm full. Till I'm not. Just give it a little time. I get married. That's going to be it. I'm full until I'm not. Just give it a little time. I have kids. That's going to be it. I'm full until I'm not. Just give it a little time. I do this. I see that. I travel here. I go there. I get the award. I have the applause. I have everything that I always thought would finally satisfy my soul. And I'm still thirsty. I mean, you know, just, I'm good for a night or two or three, maybe even a year. Who knows? And then 
I'm like, oh, what's next? It's like I need something inside of me. It's like a, well, a spring, a river. I need to quit looking out here and, and trying to satisfy with this and with this and with this and with this and with this. And with this. I, need, I need something to come and, and inside of me pour out, which is what Jesus offers. He says, look, everyone who drinks of the physical water of this physical well or of any of the waters of the wells of this world will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why? For the water that I will give him will become where? In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love her response because even though she does not yet understand this, and would you? She does at least know she wants it. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water in the heat of the day (sighs) by myself because of the scandalous ways that I've sought to quench the thirst of my soul. Give me this water. But because she's still not getting it, Jesus cuts right to the chase. He's going to go to the well that she's been going to. This one, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one. Well, we got five, now six, all six wells. He visits them at once. Straight to the point. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Ouch. What does she say? And we just have the words. We don't have the expression. She says, I have no husband. You know, and I don't know if in that moment, like Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. And she just went, oh, I have no husband. Because you can understand that. I, what do you want to do for this woman? I want to give her a hug and somewhere to live, honestly. Here's all kinds of public cards. We're going to get you some vocational training and we're going to help you get on your feet. Like, oh, I have no husband. Or did all the resentment for the ways that she was treated by all of these men over all of these years and how her whole culture has made her this, this and it's just, just, just the ruin of this journey. Did she raise up in defiance and go, I have no husband. Don't need one. I don't have one. I don't want one. I... Is it defensive? Whatever it is, it doesn't put Jesus off. He then reveals to her that he knows everything about her. Though he's a Jew, he's obviously not living in Samaria. You know, I mean, the presence of a Jew in that town, everybody would have known. She knows he's not from around here. He's like, let me tell you all about you. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true, which sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, ouch, man, you know, couldn't you be a bit more subtle? No, actually, and it's not harsh. What is he saying? He's going, listen, I want you to know that I know you. I I know the journey that you've been on. I knew you from before you were born. I've seen all of this that has transpired in your life. I know that you are thirsty. I know what you're thirsty for. I know how you have sought to quench the thirst of your soul for security, for love, for safety, for this, that, and the other thing, companionship, friendship, like everything. I know that you've been drinking from wells like this well, but other wells too, all of these guys who have been your husbands and now this guy that you're living with, you know, and all. And I know it isn't working. 
And what I'm offering you is something eternally different. Not a cup from a well from the world, but the spirit of the living God who is gifted to you through relationship with me. The only one who can take you back and who can make you pure. And notice how she responds because it's telling. It says in verse 19 that the woman said to, her, to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So, you know, she's like, I'm catching on to the fact that you know things that like only a prophet would know. So then she asks him a theological question. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. I want to show you the mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. So if you look at this map, you can see the, the name Sychar out of there. And if you follow that that line all the way down, that's actually the church that they built over the top of the well. The village was about a half a mile away. You see ancient Shechem here in the middle. This is modern-day Nablus in the, in the picture. But off there on the side, you can see Mount Gerizim, and you can see the ruins of the Samaritan Temple. They're there we visited that. So she's standing there talking with Jesus, and she's like, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. You've, you've put your finger on my sin. What do I do with it? Where do I go with it? She says, our fathers said it's up there that we're supposed to make the sacrifice for sin. That's what we, the Samaritans, believe. But you, she says, you Jews, she continues, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to go to worship. She's not trying to change the topic. I think she's perfectly on point. She's feeling the gravity of the weight of her sin. She's convicted by what Jesus has just pointed out. And she's saying, now what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Because my fathers say, I'm supposed to worship up there. And then you Jews say, I'm supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And I've made sacrifice for sin up there. And apparently that hasn't worked. You're saying it. My heart is agreeing with it. And oh, by the way, I'm a Samaritan. I don't even go to Jerusalem. And if I do, I for sure am not going to be admitted into the temple. So where's the hope for me then? To whom do I bring my sin? And Jesus says to her in verse 21, he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this Mount Gerizim here nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, but... The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, those whose sins have been taken away by the true Lamb of God who is Jesus, the true temple of God who is Christ, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, meaning by the Holy Spirit, okay, through faith in the one who is himself the truth, and that is Christ. And then he says this, and I love it. He says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, hang on, because that's a missional statement. Here's what the Bible doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say it here, and he doesn't say it when he commissions the disciples. He doesn't say, go into all the world and make converts. Is making converts important? Oh, you bet. But it's the first step. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. What does he say here? For the Father is seeking converts. No, no. He's saying the Father is seeking worshipers. He said, no, no, people who come to me, not just with their sin, but with their whole self and say, all right, what do you want to do with me? That's what he's looking for. And then by the power of his spirit, submit to a process by which your mind becomes like his mind and your heart becomes like his heart. And therefore, then your life begins to reflect his loves, his passions, his desires, his value system, his mission. That's what he's looking for. Worship is something we do not just on a Sunday. It's what we do all the time. 
He's like the father. Man, I want to know what he's looking for. He's looking for worshipers. Those who worship him, compelled by the Holy Spirit through faith in the one who is the truth, and his name is Jesus. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. It's almost like, you know, she's, she's calculating all of this stuff that he's saying. She just goes, oh, I don't know. When the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this to us. And then what does Jesus do next? Because he has not done this yet in his ministry up to this point for anyone. He does this for a Samaritan woman and that Samaritan woman. I mean, if you don't love Jesus, like, this has to endear you. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself as the Messiah. For the like his disciples are off in the town getting food. They haven't heard this. He reveals himself to her. And then what does she do? Because this is what it looks like to be awake. It's the natural response. It's just like what happens. She doesn't need to be told this. Jesus doesn't go, okay, so now here's what this looks like. And here's now what you need to go do. And I would recommend, no, I don't recommend. I would suggest, no, I don't suggest. I would command. I do command. She's like, no, no, I got it. You don't even need to tell me. I know what I'm supposed to do next. She leaves her water pot, it says in verse 28. This water pot that is emblematic, not just of the thirst of her body, but of the thirst, all of them, of her soul. And she went away into the town of Sychar to the very people she'd been avoiding. Amazing. Like people that she was ashamed before, but she's been released from her shame. People that she was fearful of the opinions of, she's been released from that too. That's a big exhale. People that she's been angry toward, resentful of, bitter toward. Forgiven people forgive people. That too is the native response of a heart that really realizes, oh my goodness, I actually have been set free. She wants everybody, even these people who have been brutal to her, to come experience Christ. So she goes back into the town and she says to the people, notice this, she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, what's the problem with that from their perspective? Everybody in town knew all that she ever did. What, like this is, uh, this is new information? Like, what, 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 what do you mean? There's nothing remarkable about that statement. What grabs these people is the fact that she came to get them. The fact that this woman who was obviously so bound in, in sin and in shame and in guilt and in fear and in desperation and in all of these things that she was trapped into, no question. Anger, resentment, all of these things was coming and pleading with them for their souls. It's absolutely beautiful. She's transformed, guys. And so do you know what they did in response? They listened to her. They went out to see Jesus. And they too then drank deeply of the living water, of the living well, of the true temple, who is the Lord Christ, who came and suffered and died that they might be forgiven and us too. And who fills us with this spring that is his spirit which satisfies in a way that nothing else will. And I love this because here's the point, okay? This is the point for me, I think, today. This is the point that I think that the church in South Florida needs to hear. At somewhere right around this point in the story, 
Jesus' disciples returned just before the end of this conversation. They saw her leave the water jar, and they knew she was going to town to get folks. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he points at her example, just like he looks at us, and he points at her example. And listen to what he says. He says in verse 35, Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. What is he saying? Because I didn't grow up on a farm. And it's pointed So I'm going to poke you with it. Sharp. He's saying, look, stop saying that someday you'll get around to telling people about me. Just cut it out. It's not going to happen. Last five years, last 10 years, last 20 years, some of us the last 40 years, it hasn't happened. When is it all of a sudden going to be the right time? When is it going to be convenient? When are all the stars going to line up? When are you going to find? He's like, no, 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 cut it out. It's not the best time later. He's like, it's the best time now. Don't say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. He's like, look at that woman. Look, she just came to faith. Look what she's doing. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look around at the people in your life. Wherever they are found. Look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields of this world are full of people who are white for harvest. He's saying, guys, if you're wondering when is the best time to start telling people about me, he's like, it's always now. That's the answer. It's poignant, isn't it? It's powerful. And I don't think Jesus said it in irritation. I don't think he said it in anger. I think he said it it with a heart that was, frankly, like the heart of that woman. She goes into the village and pleads with these people who have betrayed her, who have wounded her. Please come. I think on behalf of a world that has betrayed and wounded him, Jesus is saying to us, please go. Go and make me known. So I close with this, really two imperatives. The first one is just come to Jesus. Man, what are the wells that you're drinking from right now? Like, you know, I'm like, oh, it's the well of this and... and, Kind of a cruddy cup, you know, or it's the well of this, or it's the well of this, it's the well of this. If I could just get this, then I will have landed the plane. What's the this? Because whatever that is, that is what you're worshiping. It's your true God. And we all wrestle with it. Subconsciously even, we're like, oh, but even if it's just... It isn't. Everyone who drinks from this well, he's like, yeah, that one and that one and that one and that one. Name a well. Is it in the world? Okay, that one. Okay, great. That one, that one, that one, that one. We'll be thirsty again. But whoever enters into a relationship with me and is filled with my spirit, oh man, it will become like a, like a spring of water within you, welling up to eternal life. Come to Jesus. That's the first one. And then secondly, Look around, lift up your eyes, and realize that the time for telling people about Jesus is not someday down the road. It's now. And it's always now. And as I said last week, that's not just our job. Oh, I've got to go do my job. I guess I have to tell somebody about Jesus. I don't know. Hopefully they'll come to faith. No. It's our joy. What a joy this woman had personally, and then, again, as she watched 
Person after person after person after person after person after person in this village full of people that she'd been freed by Jesus to love come to faith in him and be transformed. It's amazing. So who do you need to talk to about Jesus this week? Like this week, like we got a calendar week, boom, this is your week. Come on. Who is it? You know who it is 90 times out of 100, don't you? I mean, like, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I, you know, I'm supposed to. I know who it is. All right, great. Who is it? Who do you need to put on your alpha list? You're like, I don't, know, I don't have an alpha list. That's what the notes thing on your phone is for, that and a thousand other things. But I mean, like, you just put an alpha list. You just start and you put names on it and then you start praying about it because in January it's coming again and it's a great opportunity for them to just be able in a safe space to kind of explore these things and not feel pressured. Who do you need to invite to the next men's breakfast? It's coming and it's awesome. We had like 72 guys at our last men's breakfast. It was amazing. And Sam Kastensmith, who teaches, is off the charts awesome. Like, I'm like, this is great. I love it. I just go hang out with the guys. It's fun. Really great. Who do you need to bring to Rio Women? I think it's a week from Monday, if I remember correctly. Who needs to come with you as a friend? Who do you need to bring to church? You know, or send them a service or something. Or maybe say, listen, next Sunday I'm going to invite you over. I know maybe going would be a little intimidating. I'll make you breakfast. We'll watch it together in the next week. If you feel comfortable, come with us. We keep kicking the can down the road. And I think this is a great opportunity for the church in South Florida and for us to go, hey, you know what? Christ has entrusted his living water to us, his people. And I think he's pleading with us. He's saying, guys, you know what? Now, now is the time. Now is the time to take it and to go. Okay? So work that through, whatever that looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that Jesus meets not just this woman at the well, but he meets us at the well. God, we are grateful for one who knows how we got from point A to point Z. How we've made a mess of things. Who traveled every path with us knowing that we drank from this well and then that one and then this one and then that one and then we're still drinking on this one and we're mainlining this one over here and we're... who had to come, who came a lot further from than, than Jerusalem to Sychar to meet with us, from heaven to earth, he has come. Lord, claim your people. God, forgive and wash away our sin. Change our hearts and our resentments, our fears, all our insecurities. Cure all of our maladies, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come and fill us, Holy Spirit. And send us out with your living water. Give us a holy boldness about our life. The life that we have in you. And the life that you offer to the world. Grant us this day our one. Who's the one that we might go and offer that life to someone this week? Do this, we pray in Jesus' name.